participating in this event. I'm very happy that um, this is quite an early event, so you're all here. And uh, today we are going to discuss the Built and Road initiative that China has proposed uh, in 2013. And uh, this is a very important strategy that uh, China had um, started um, you know, for the next few years or maybe for the next um, number of years. And uh, there are so many you know, stories and discussions about this event, especially in the current international economic environment, which is very uncertain. And uh, apparently, the US, which has led the leadership of the world for the last uh, half a century, but it's um, going to change. I, I don't know how this will change, because there's a lot of uncertainty facing for us. So the China's role in the new world is becoming more and more important. But uh, as I said earlier, this is uh, still very uncertain. Because uh, since the, the proposal of Belt and Road Initiative, also called One Belt, One Road, there's not too much details that has been released from the government. So everybody has their our interpretation of this initiative. And uh, fortunately, we have uh, a panel which comes from different institutions, from academics, from China side, from European side, and from the banks who offers money to the Belt and Road Initiative. So all of them will give a very, I think, a fruitful discussion for today. And uh, I hope that um, uh, our discussion will make things more clear or make um, you know, the start of the whole discussion. So thank you for coming in. And uh, let me introduce our four people from the, from the panel, which we discussed today. First, Alicia garcia Hero, and uh, she's a senior fellow in Brooklyn. And uh, Minxi Sun, and uh, she's a counselor for Economic Affairs, China's mission to the EU. And uh, Alexandra, member of cabinet of Commissioner Cuba. And uh, she's uh, next. Oh, he's an expert in transport and uh, for connectivity issues. And uh, also Su Antai, um, she's um, from the banks from HSBC. So they have a lot of to to share with us from different angles. So uh, I'm Jeremy. I'm a visiting fellow here. So I'm also Chinese. I see there are you know three Chinese, well, not Chinese. So China origin people and uh, two Europeans. So you can see. Opinions from both sides, maybe they're not so different, so we'll see. And uh, let me give the floor to Alicia first to discuss the Belt and Road Initiative from the financial perspective. Okay, Alicia, <coughs> it's your time. Sure. Uh, sorry, I just grabbed this. Uh, I'll stay here, yeah? Is that okay? Uh, yeah. It's on now. Okay. So first of all, thank you very much for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure. This is, I think, our second uh, seminar on Belt and Road, if I'm not mistaken. So we thought it would be nice to uh, narrow it down a little bit. And of course, the question, the $1 million question is not so much whether this is not a wonderful project, because I do think it is. And although I hear very negative views in Hong Kong, well, no longer so, but for a long time that, oh, you know, this is all just a dream. And I said, well, it's a wonderful dream. And now they seem to come to terms with the reality that it is actually not only a dream, which is good, but the key question still pending is how, given that it's a big dream, how are you going to finance it? So that's why we chose this topic here, the uh, financing of the Belt and Road. 
Um, so for whoever, which I guess nobody anymore, but you know, since we're in Europe, I still feel a little bit, uh, I should always just give a sense of what we're talking about. In, in, from Hong Kong, for example, this is not what they focus on. They focus on, on the belt, not the road, meaning they focus on the south part of the story, you know, the, the ASEAN part of the belt and road, and they kind of forget this map. But actually, this is going towards Europe. That's why you know, I, I wanted to remind the public, although you're not listening to this from Hong Kong, but you know, living there, I, I sometimes feel that, oh, it's not about Indonesia, it's about Europe. And that's why I wanted to show that this is a big project for Europe. And this is too many, if not too many, many, let's say, million, billion people involved, 4.4. Uh, 21 trillion US dollar altogether, of course, including China, obviously. And this is just massive. So what is this really all about? I won't talk again too much about what the project is because that's not the focus, but two ideas only. This is uh, in a nutshell. I'm not saying this is just to solve China's overcapacity problem. That would be too simplistic, frankly speaking. But But it does show that in a way, China has outgrown its own size, which is hard, yeah, given China's size. But in a way, that's a way to look at it. <coughs> as many other empires, as you started, in the world, China has somehow has come to the realization that its production capacity is so huge that it actually needs, and that's our view, Jiang Wei and I being co-authors for projects on this uh, Belt and Road, it needs, a it needs a backyard. But China being so large, it needs a big backyard. And it so happens to be as big as I just showed you. And I'm not saying Europe is part of that, but it's at the end of that, in a way, in that road. So here, I only, I'm only showing you that uh, no matter what we say, the overcapacity uh, issue is still there. And it is one you know, among the reasons. And, uh, and in a way, I see nothing running uh, with that, because there is actually a need. Right, be, right beside China in any direction you may look at. So uh, Asian Development Bank, for example, has come with this uh, wonderful estimate that many people have heard about of a, an eight trillion US dollar uh, estimated needs in infrastructure up to 2020 in the region. So, you know, you would say, well, you know, you have the capacity, I have the needs. So in a way, it just all adds up and you have there the, the breakdown by sector of the infrastructure needs. So now, I, I slowly but steadily move into the financing. Um, can China finance all of this? Uh, and the question is, sorry, this I guess, yeah, I didn't organize my slides properly. So that's not a good idea, but here you go. I will move backwards. Um, so first of all, before I move to financing, that's a project. I showed you 8 trillion infrastructure needs. Um, this uh, boils down to less in a minute. I'll show you what really means for Belt and Road because that's all the whole Asia. But the, the, what I would like to say is whether this is happening. Are we just talking about something that may happen or is it happening? It is happening. It's already happening big time. And there I show you, and this is based on you know a lot of uh, research of specific projects that we know of, and it's outdated. So it's more than that. that and you, you sum those billions of US dollars, and you realize that a lot has already happened. Most of it is actually 
Russia and Pakistan. And then on the sectors, you have mainly so far rail and energy. Um, so it is happening. And the question is how, you know, what's the amount that China, China wants to pursue and of course the Belt and Road uh, related countries. So the first figure we heard, and this is actually years ago already, is five trillion US dollars. That's the first attempt of what wants to be financed, what, what is aimed to be financed. More recently, we heard about something close to more of a trillion, which I think is the recognition that this is massive. And uh, no matter how big China is, just to give you an idea, five trillion US dollars is about 20 to 20 plus percent of China's GDP. So this is really massive. And, and, and just as, as we move along, this one trillion or close to one trillion is what has been announced already. So still very massive. Now, can China do this by itself? So this is this table. It's basically what I want to show you. It's taken me a while to come up with these numbers. So I hope you can bear with me. So first of all, most people would argue, OK, AIB, uh, uh, New Development Bank, all of these new inter in, uh, international organizations, they will do the job. They can't do the job. They're just massively. Uh, small for the type of job that I just showed you. And I, you know, we know about the actual uh, subscribed capital, about 100, not about, actually 100 billion US dollars each. The announced so far, you have there about between 10 to 14 billion, 5 to 7 billion each, and disbursed less than 2 billion each so far. So that's not making the Russia and Pakistan figures I showed you. It's just not possible. So who is behind that money? Not the Silk Road, uh, 40 in capital, uh, two disbursed, uh, not disbursed, announced. So, so nothing to do with what we th seem to think would be the institutions behind this. It's actually, and, and this is part, the first part of the story, Chinese banks. Now. We don't know how much they've spent. Only actually Bank of China has announced a 20 billion uh, envelope, if you want, for Belt and Road projects. But we know that uh, Bank of China is probably not um, you know, uh, steering the wheel of Belt and Road infra projects. It's mainly Chinese development banks, and mainly because of the, the sheer size of its balance sheet, at least five to six times bigger than Exim Bank, namely uh, China Development Bank. So let's focus on China Development Bank. We actually don't know, because it's not reported, how much they've spent on Belt and Road projects, but, but actually we know how much they've spent on Latin America. So I use that figure to have a sense of how much they could have already spent on Belt and Road. And of course I have no idea, but just an estimate. So what I do is I look at all cross-border lending flows from the world into Belt and Road countries. Yeah? And that's about 9% of total. And I apply that ratio compared to the Latin ratio to come up with a figure for China. So I don't know whether I've been clear, but I basically use that ratio to compare global cross-border lending, Latin and, and Belt and Road, and I use the development bank, China Development Bank, figure for LATAM to get what could be what they've 
spent for Belt and Road. I'm not arguing that this is right. I'm just saying just to have a sense of dimension. And I come up with that number, 400, 415 billion US dollars so far. So it's pretty massive. And that's not projected. That's just coming from the current already spent figures. And it might be less, it might be more, but it gives us a sense of dimension. Um, and then, uh, well, that's, that's just to, to, now, my slide that I didn't manage to cover because it was too early. Can Chinese banks continue? Can China Development Bank continue to lend 400 billion, you know, as we speak? Well, given that its balance sheet is close to a trillion, maybe, but frankly, they have a lot to do in China as well at the moment. And that's what I want to show here, which is that we know, and this is official figures. I'm not making up anything. This is official figures. China's stress loan ratio, which is I'm um, adding the official MPL ratio, non-performing loan, plus uh, the special mention loan, which uh, acknowledged even by the CBRC is special mention for a reason, <laughs> yeah, for, for a reason of potential distress. All of that adapts to close to 6% of total loans. So it's pretty high, maybe not as high as Europe, so I don't want to, you know, like be extremely, uh, uh, you know, put, make it as if there were no problem in Europe and Chinese banks are uh, down the drain. No, that's not the point. But actually, their asset quality is worsening as the economy decelerates and for many other reasons that I want to get into. And the coverage ratio, which is kind of the fortress of the CBRC's approach to this issue, that everything is covered and that we shouldn't worry, is coming down nicely. The, that bar there, the 150, is that bar, it's not my bar, it's the CBRC's limit to, I mean, the minimum coverage ratio for MPLs in, for Chinese banks as uh, regulated by the CBRC. So meaning, uh, and, and well, the, the violet one, that's my own calculation of where that would be if I were to include those special mention loans. In other words, if China, uh, China's regulators, the CBRC in particular, were to acknowledge that those special mention loans are actually not in good shape and should be treated as non-performing loans, then the coverage ratio would literally not be enough for the current level of uh, asset distress in China. In other words, these banks, in my humble opinion, can't go on lending for 100 billion as if it were nothing. It's just very difficult, increasingly difficult. And that's nothing wrong with it. I mean, this, this is the reality probably everywhere, either for regulatory reasons or for already saddled balance sheets, including European banks for that matter. So I'm going to move to European banks, and that will be my, sorry, I may have taken too long. I'll be very brief on this one. It's only one slide left, I think. So now, why do I come to European banks? First of all, because we tend to forget that European banks are the largest cross-border lenders in the world, by far, and they've always been Actually, they used to be even larger compared to the whole world. So how do I uh, show this to you? Here. Well, I guess I'm not sure I can. Yeah. So this is international claims. This is BI statistics. Uh, international claims may not say too much to you. It only means how much banks in the whole world lend cross-border. That's what it is. And we're talking at the peak right before the global financial crisis, 20 trillion US dollars. 
not peanuts. So that's what was being lent. And interestingly, Europe had more than half of that. So European banks were lending at the peak close to 12 to 13 trillion US dollar across, outside, not outside Europe, sorry, outside its own you know, uh, borders, because a lot was intra-Europe, to be frank. But anyway, I'll show you. So at least half of that was intra-Europe. The rest was overseas, outside Europe. And there, uh, I'm showing you borrowing countries. So what I'm showing you here is how much of those at the peak 20 trillion and, uh, were um, uh, borrowed by emerging economies. So at the peak is 3.5 trillion US dollar. And how much of that is OBOR, Belt and Road countries? So uh, excluding China, obviously. So this is everybody but China. And you have there about 1.5 trillion. Uh, now, this down here is the key. So how much of that, uh, by the way, this is China. China has recently, late 15, started to report to the BIS, location statistics, is different uh, definition, but never mind. It serves the purpose to be, uh, has started to report to the BIS how much it lends to the rest of the world. And that's this figure out here, which is close to 300, 400 billion. So you can already have a sense that it might not be all, because I'm telling you that, according to my estimates, already not my estimates, uh, Inter-American Development uh, Bank estimates, no, uh, Inter-American Dialogue estimates, 115 only Latin America. So this number is too small, you can tell. But a lot of the lending comes through Hong Kong. So, you know, it, it doesn't really show the whole breast of that lending. But anyway, it gives us uh, a sense of dimension. What I'm trying to say here is that European banks are huge lenders. And that they are huge lenders, that's the final point here, in the Belt and Road countries already. They have 55% of total cross-border lending into these countries already today. So I don't have any conclusions because I'm going to conclude myself. Uh, what I'm trying to say here is that this is a great project. It's China-driven. China has a lot of financial muscle to do lots of things, but this is a massive project. And it so happens that even before the project started, European banks were already in the region, as in that region and in any other region, because they are the largest cross-border lenders in the world. And therefore, it comes natural to me to convey the message that that should continue or is going to continue for obvious reasons. Actually, easier than before because now there is more of a push for projects that can be financed. And I think the HSBC will be happy about this message, but it's more general. I mean, it's really very obvious that European banks will be part of this story and that in a nutshell, through the financing especially, Europe should actually benefit in a way or another from this project because it improves connectivity, we will hear about, but also because it keeps financing opportunities, high return financial opportunities, to European banks that have been used to lending anyway, there and elsewhere. So I think that's the message, that we can't really forget about this project. It's too important for Europe, even from the financing side. So I leave it here. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Alicia, for this very excellent uh, introduction speech. And uh, we, okay, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I think this is very important because uh, although we know that the Belt and Road is proposed by China, it uh, is always seeking cooperation elsewhere from 
from Europe, of course, very important one. And Asia gives the, the reality that the Chinese must face because the, this is a huge project we proposed, and it's not possible for us to do it alone. So seeking international cooperation maybe is the reality <coughs> facing us. And uh, I'm not so sure how this is um, really a concern for China's side, but uh, we have Minxi here. Maybe you can give some introduction of how China has uh, progressed so far and uh, how we plan to cooperate with Europe on this massive project. Okay. Hello. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, dear colleagues, uh, this is my uh, second time uh, to have the privilege to address the audience uh, at this uh, very famous think tank. Uh, first of all, I, I, I should thank uh, Brago uh, for uh, publishing a very um, well-organized report on BND, BNR. Uh, the conclusion uh, I remember is that uh, the BNR uh, will contribute uh, to the uh, reduction of the, uh, the transportation cost uh, of uh, the cross-border uh, trade and thus has the potential to uh, uh, increase the uh, overall the trade volume of the EU by maybe 6%. I think this uh, report and th this uh, uh, conclusion is well received in the, uh, uh, China, in the Chinese academic circle as well as in the foreign ministry. So uh, uh, I, uh, I want to introduce to the audience that the authors here of the report also are here, uh, Alicia and Jianwei. So thank you for your valuable job. And then uh, I will, uh, I come from the uh, uh, Chinese mission to the EU, so I want to um, brief you uh, the latest de development of the uh, BNR. Uh, actually, the, uh, the, the achievements of the, uh, the BNR are uh, much higher than our expectation. Uh, you, you can imagine after just uh, three years, uh, now over 100 uh, countries and international uh, institutions uh, have given their warm uh, response and support to this initiative. Uh, more than 40 uh, countries have signed this uh, cooperation agreement with China on this uh, on BNR uh, cooperation, and uh, among which seven are European countries. And uh, uh, UN Security Council, UN uh, General Assembly, and uh, APEC. Uh, ASEM, they all uh, incorporated or reflected the, the BNR um, uh, cooperation in their resolutions and uh, documents. And the Chinese uh, companies have uh, made uh, more than uh, 50 billion US dollars along the route and launched, have launched uh, uh, a number of major uh, uh, projects. And uh, this year, uh, May the 14th and 15th, to 15th, uh, in Beijing, there will be a high-level uh, BNR uh, forum uh, the, uh, for international uh, cooperation. Uh, the main theme is uh, the cooperation for common prosperity, focusing on the interconnectivity uh, connect, uh, of uh, policy, trade, transportation, Finance and people, and we are. Uh, there are two uh, main topics. One is the uh, the, the the policy synergy synergy for uh, a closer partnership. 
The other is uh, connectivity uh, cooperation for uh, interconnected development. And up to now, we have known that uh, uh, leaders from over 20 countries have confirmed their uh, participation to the forum, representing Asia, Europe, uh, Africa, and Latin America. And there are also uh, ministerial uh, delegations uh, from other uh, countries and the representatives of uh, uh, international institutions and academic circle, academic people, business people, and uh, I believe, uh, I, I know that there are also the, uh, contacts with the, uh, between China, between our side with the uh, EU institution. I believe there will be a high-ranking uh, uh, representative uh, of the EU institution to also represent, uh, present to, in the uh, forum. And uh, few words about, uh, then few words on uh, this uh, uh, BNR initiative uh, in, uh, in Europe. We, in Europe, we try to advance the three synergies. Uh, the first one is the synergy between the uh, BNR initiative with the uh, development strategy of the EU and its member states. And the second synergy is between a Juncker plan and the international production capacity cooperation. The third synergy is the 16 plus one, the China and the Central Eastern, Eastern European countries. Uh, uh, cooperation with the China-EU overall uh, cooperation. At the EU level, we have now uh, two major uh, results. <coughs> One is China-EU uh, cooperation fund, uh, that is still that is, uh, which was uh, uh, included uh, in the uh, uh, in the summit uh, summit uh, summit joint statement of uh, 2015. Uh, this fund uh, uh, is still under discussion between the Sucro Fund and the EIB. And, this, and the, the other one is that the China-EU connectivity platform. It's, I can assure you that it goes very smoothly and, and our uh, friend Alexander will uh, brief you later the, the, the development of this, uh, this, this uh, connectivity platform. And on the at the member states level, I can just uh, uh, tell you some major uh, projects. First, this uh, uh, Budapest-Belgrade railway. The second is this, um, this, this uh, land, uh, China-EU Land Sea Express, or we call it the China-EU Land Maritime Route, that is linking this uh, Piraeus, the port Piraeus of Greece with Belgrade via Macedonia. And the third is the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, port area cooperation along the three seas, that is the uh, Baltic Sea, uh, Atrian Sea, and, uh, and the Black Sea. This initiative was put forward by uh, Madam President of uh, Croatia, uh, and again, uh, our warm support and uh, the, uh, the cooperation will be uh, focused in the fields of, um, of infrastructure, uh, energy, and telecommunication. And the fourth uh, is the China-EU freight rail service. Uh, almost 40 routes have been opened, and uh, over 2,000 trains have been in oper operation. 
And the newest development is the, the, the route uh, expand, extended to London. And the fourth, uh, and, the, uh, and the and the and uh, the last one, I think, is um, uh, the the uh, the synergy uh, between the uh, uh, Northern Powerhouse uh, Initiative of the UK with the Belt and the Road. This was the consensus uh, during our present state visit to to the UK uh, two years ago. And uh, then I, uh, some words on this uh, financing. I'm not an expert. I can just uh, tell you what I have, no what I know. Um, uh, firstly, the AIIB, the very famous uh, new bank, our joint baby. Uh, uh, we have now uh, 57 founding members, among which uh, 18 are Europeans, can, uh, 18 are European countries and uh, including 14 EU member states. I think we have done the, uh, the right thing, uh, the reality shows, and then uh, the European countries has made, have made an, uh, a wise decision. And uh, uh, this year, uh, about 25 new members uh, will join this, this, uh, this bank. And uh, up to now, uh, nine, Projects have been approved with the invest investment of uh, 1.7 uh, billion US dollars uh, in seven countries. Uh, and uh, the, the main field of investment is uh, transportation and energy. And second is the Silk Road Fund. Uh, I don't know exact, uh, the detailed information of their investment, but I, I know that they have signed this uh, MOU with EBRD and also they conducted the, uh, the, the negotiation uh, with uh, EIB on, the, on, on this uh, uh, China-EU cooperation fund. And third is the newly established uh, uh, this uh, China Sino-CEE, that's China Central and European, uh, uh, Central and Eastern European countries uh, financial holding company uh, during the Riga summit. Uh, with uh, 10 billion euros. Uh, ICBC, the China's biggest commercial bank, takes the lead. And in the support of these connectivity projects uh, 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 and, uh, and international uh, capacity cooperation uh, within the framework of uh, 16 Path 1. And the third, uh, and, the, and the fourth, I think, is uh, the China's four biggest commercial banks, that ICBC, BOC, and Agriculture Bank of China and China Construction Bank, they have all expanded their branches, offices throughout Europe. And to support the Chinese enterprises, the investment in Europe, partly also involved in this BNR initiative, for example, the BOC Bank of China now, have, uh, now has uh, uh, 50, uh, 35, uh, 34, 34 branches uh, in uh, 15 uh, European countries. And the, and the last, I, I should say that uh, uh, we also need uh, very much the uh, cooperation with the uh, multilateral banks, 
the EIB, EBRD, ADB, and World Bank. Uh, I, I just stop now because uh, today I want to hear the insights uh, of the and the advice and even the critics from the uh, from other speakers and also the audience. Uh, let's try. Let us try to jointly um, uh, uh, advance this uh, uh, this project that will benefit the uh, uh, China, the EU, and and also the countries areas between us. Thank you. Thank you, Minxi, for giving us so many information. I, I don't remember all of them, but uh, luckily we have the, you know, the video that you can see on the website, so you can review all the information again and to you know, remember all the numbers, statistics. It's so important, but the, the thing that I get from your speech is that this is a huge and massive and it's undergoing business for China and the cooperation internationally. And one of the most important um, aspects of the program is the connectivity problem platform and Alexandra I think you are a leading expert from the European side and what's your opinion on the on the plan for connectivity and most importantly I, I think I have the question that uh, because the, the banks the financial institutions put so much money on this massive project uh, this should be profitable otherwise this should cause a lot of problem afterwards so I'm looking forward to your insightful opinions, suggestions, uh, 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 introductions of the plan form connectivity, and uh, do you think this is profitable for the banks to join me? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you to Bruegel for inviting me. Um, my background is uh, from the European Investment Bank, and uh, for two years I've been working in uh, DG ECFIN in the Commission on the Investment Plan for Europe and the External Investment Plan, and I'm now in the cabinet of commissioner for transport, uh, Mrs. Bultz. So I will give first a bit of background on the context of cooperation with China on the Belt and Road and the investment plan. Then I will focus more specifically on the connectivity platform and give you the update of where we stand. And then I will dig a little bit deeper into your question on the profitability and how to make it uh, uh, sustainable. So first of all, the background. Uh, since 2015, we started uh, a close dialogue with the Chinese uh, authorities and uh, both uh, at the level of government and at the level of banks <coughs> to see what could be the synergies between the Belt and Road Initiative that at the time was announced, but uh, as we speak, we are moving towards a little bit more concrete ideas. And the same happened in parallel to our investment plan for Europe, which we launched in 2015, focusing on the EU restoring levels of investment in the European <coughs> Union which we are now announcing to, to boost further so that the total plan would aim to uh, mobilize 500 billion euros uh, by 2020 inside Europe. And we are well on track uh, to achieve this, uh, this target. Uh, and it covers all infrastructure, uh, innovation, and SMEs within the EU. So China was the first country to signal uh, openness to look at ways to both invest within Europe and support this plan, at the same time also look at ways to align, starting with transport, how to cooperate more on connectivity. So in parallel, we have a, uh, established a working group which has looked at the, at the various options, and we have exactly now a more technical discussion going on between the European Investment Bank and the European Investment Fund and the Silk Road Fund on the Chinese side under the, under the guidance of the NDRC 
to see what concretely can be done specifically to see what uh, type of projects could be financed. In infrastructure, we have a specific framework uh, in Europe and, uh, and a number of, uh, of uh, standards to be respected, <coughs> including on public procurement, which are different from the practices in other areas of the world. And uh, uh, in SMEs, there could be also some potential to uh, cooperate with the EIF on potential financing of, uh, in particular, higher risk capital uh, in Europe. These are discussions which are going on, but there is a general atmosphere of cooperation and openness uh, to invest within the entire EU, uh, all the 28 member states. In, uh, with respect to the, uh, to the connectivity platform, a little bit more in detail, we have established also there a very close dialogue, first more between the Commission and DRC, but now we started also more uh, discussions at the expert level, at financiers level. There was a first meeting end of November in Beijing between the financiers, also the Commission and DRC uh, were present, but also the EIB, the CDP, and so the, let's say, the, the public banks on both sides. But also, for the first time, we also ask the member states to join, the EU member states, because we want to have, at the same time, a discussion on the at policy level and the standards, and a discussion on the concrete potential projects. So within the, the EU, we have started to have an alignment of what could be the projects within our 10T priorities uh, that cover Europe and the neighboring countries that could see that uh, could be the object of closer cooperation with China. And the same happens for some projects also in China. These are projects in the railway sector, but primarily, but also uh, roads and uh, ports. And uh, we hope one day also to move towards intermodal uh, uh, connections. So we have started these discussions uh, quite recently, and it will be pursued this year. Uh, it's an evolutive list of projects. So we have started to see concretely uh, the projects are not at the same level of maturity. So the projects we have in Europe, we have proposed with the agreement of member states are projects where there is a scope and needs to have co-financing uh, from other investors. Uh, and we are open and investors from, from uh, China or any other country. So there is a very open approach and we will have the projects that can be, that have needs including access of uh, railway connections that could be uh, object of co-financing. So we have started to enter into these more specific uh, discussions. Of course, the Commission is helping to, to facilitate this dialogue, but uh, we do not decide who should finance what. Uh, we are not, uh, uh, let's say, we don't have this competence in Europe. Uh, probably different is the situation in China where there is more, uh, let's say, planning and more capacity to decide the sources of financing. Uh, this is, uh, has to be recognized. And, and in between, we have not started yet to look at all the countries in between, because here we have the, uh, let's say, the three levels of discussions we are organizing now are, first, alignment on the policy priorities, second, the financing cooperation, and third, the standards. So on policy priorities, we have a clear policy of 10T in the EU. We have our, I'm talking transport now, eh? We have our uh, core network that uh, member states are committed to complete by 2030, and we have a comprehensive network to be completed by 2050. So we have a clear medium to long-term vision of what are the priority corridors in all the modes, 
railways, roads, uh, ports, inland waterways, and uh, uh, also airport connections. But these are the, all the four modes of transport. So we have this clear. We have now extended these maps to Balkans and uh, neighborhood. Um, it's actually under approval uh, this month or next month. So we have uh, these priorities clearly identified, which took quite some time, as you can imagine, of dialogue with the member states and with the neighboring countries to identify what are the priorities in which to invest. And even just the needs of completing the core network by 2030, we estimate a need of uh, 700 uh, billion approximately <coughs> necessary between uh, 2014 and 2030 to complete it. If we look at the level of investment, we are still uh, below this uh, trend. So there is a need to, 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 divert, uh, to orient some financial resources to focus on this core network. And obviously the resources are relatively limited, especially in uh, terms of public budgets. The EU budget is put at the disposal. We have a Connecting Europe facility which supports this program with grants and more and more also in combination with loans. We have the EIB financing, including with the Investment Plan for Europe. We have national promotional banks, and we attract, we want to attract the third parties' capital as well, in particular private sector, to focus on this core network. So these are the clear priorities. And obviously, if there were an excess of resources, we could also think to go beyond. But for the moment, we would prefer to, to really have the priorities delivered first. Um, now, we do not have the specific details of the maps beyond. So it would be very important to have this policy alignment, and this is the next uh, uh, discussion we want to have with China authorities, and of course with the countries in between, because we need their agreement. What are the real priorities to invest on so that we can then focus to, to make the, the, let's say, to, to, to push for these for this projects to the extent that we have, uh, that we have an influence? Uh, so we are interested that our TNT network continues in a, in a seamless way, in an intermodal way. So this is the, the priority uh, at the policy level. There is then the financing cooperation that I briefly touched upon, but uh, here we have again um, a different uh, system because we have uh, uh, in Europe a framework of uh, um, um, antitrust, uh, uh, state aid, uh, investor protection, intellectual property, uh, um, a number of, uh, of uh, investment, uh, uh, public procurement, very important environmental uh, uh, legislation. So we have a number of uh, legislation that uh, uh, direct the investments within Europe within this framework. And it's different in other countries and in other regions of the world. They do not have exactly the same. Uh, and therefore, this has to be recognized. So it takes some time to see and to, and to show also to our counterparts that these are the rules that we apply in Europe. And for instance, we cannot have, uh, we do not apply tied investment, not even when we operate outside Europe with our EU funds or EIB funds. It's completely untied. Therefore, we finance and uh, and we push for having a fair, open, and transparent uh, procurement. So on the financing, this is the part where we want uh, uh, to focus on. Um, and that means that we would like to have the same type of uh, 
uh, approach as much as possible, recognizing, that, of course, that the countries are in a different stage of development and there are different uh, approaches to, to the state uh, intervention in the economy. But within the EU, we have a single market with this type of rules, and inside these rules, we have as much free market as possible. Um, so this is the, for the financing cooperation. And uh, uh, with respect to, to China and also financing outside Europe, there are instruments we have, uh, particularly for the neighboring countries, for the Western Balkans, and for developing countries. There is the whole development cooperation funds that the EU is using in the framework of development aid. And this can finance also infrastructure and we actually finance a number of infrastructure projects, either with grants or with loans by the EIB, by EPRD, by even bilateral agencies of member states in the neighborhood and beyond. Uh, so there are uh, just the, the idea of the total amount of grants we give outside Europe is about 8 billion per year, and another 8 billion is given in loans by the EIB. So this is pretty sizable. And then the EBRD, which operates in Balkans and neighborhood, has more or less another eight or nine billion per year. So this is the, uh, okay, covers all the regions, but there is a strong focus on the ring uh, around Europe. Um, in terms of standards, that's what I wanted to mention. It's important to, to maintain the dialogue because I think that both at general level, <clears throat> but also at sectorial level, when we enter into the details of the rail interoperability, aviation agreement, <coughs> and a number of issues, customs, uh, all these issues are very, very important to have a dialogue on them, to have also, <coughs> again, not just between Europe and China, but that would be an important starting point, but also the countries in between. We need to focus on the having, <coughs> let's say, an alignment of the more technical standards at the sectorial level to make sure that the investments are sustainable. And then I come to your point. How are the banks being attracted? Of course, the banks are attracted if there is a clear uh, priorities, that we, they see that these are the projects where there is a clear view that these are the priorities and we are not investing in projects, for instance, where there is a very high risk that they will not materialize because when we talk infrastructure, they are really long-term projects. I'm not surprised about the figures shown by Alisa because these investments do not happen in one year. This is not uh, lending to banks for SMEs and working capital. These are investments in in, uh, in long-term infrastructure, energy transport primarily, they take many years just to plan, to realize uh, even more, uh, even, even in developed countries. By the way, we see examples even in very advanced countries, even in Europe, it takes a very long time to, to materialize. So we should be patient and have a clear vision on the priorities. And this would attract the, the banks and the private sector. What will attract them also is to have an alignment uh, with a clear buy-in also of the countries of transit uh, of what are, the again, the standards. And, and, the, and then, of course, when we go to the concrete, we have to look at the, at the economic uh, sustainability of the projects. So they have to be analyzed uh, thoroughly. They have to be uh, clearly uh, economically viable. Um, they can be announced or there could be a commitment only when an analysis of the traffic risk, of the political risk, of the operational risk can be done, uh, sustainability in terms of environment, uh, procurement uh, approach to make the best value for money. All these issues are important for any bank, public or private. For the private ones, there is also the issue of cash flow and revenues that comes into the picture to make sure that they are also financially attractive. But there we can work on a combination 
and that's what we do also in Europe. Part of the, of the projects which uh, typically have uh, positive externalities because of connectivity, efficiency, safety, or environment, this part is captured by grants, and then there is a part that can be more dynamic and can be financed by loans. In this respect, we have to recognize this point. Uh, we cannot finance uh, main infrastructure. Uh, different is the case of ICT, but in transport and energy, uh, it cannot be purely financed by, by loans always. Uh, there is always a component of grants that has to be put uh, into the picture, and this is what we do also in Europe. So I stop here. Uh, I can go more in details if you need. Yeah. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for this very comprehensive introduction from European side. And uh, I think the last but not the least is from the banks because they are the one who really pays the money for us. So I'm really looking forward to your discussion from a banker's perspective. Okay, then floor is yours. Thank you. Um, you know, the joys of being the last speaker is that you're preceded by excellent experts who basically covered one... Sorry, I basically destroyed your other microphone. But, um, you know, who've actually laid the ground and covered so many excellent details. So what I'm actually going to do, and actually I just actually want to comment on some, um, uh, on, uh, I think, the presentations, but then they kind of take us a little bit backwards uh, in terms of how, you know, one can actually view the Belt and Road, you know, that includes infrastructure, but really beyond. Can you hear me? <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and then I think go into a little bit detail about the players of what's going to make up the financing of the Belt and Road, uh, and then go with a little bit more into detail. Um, I think that, I, I know that the Belt and Road, uh, there's a lot of discussion around infrastructure, but I have to say that, um, you know, having, sitting in London and having been in Poland, actually when, uh, in Warsaw, when President Xi was actually visiting for the Secret Forum, and then subsequently, you know, in Prague, uh, when, um, you know, there was a huge China investment summit. We saw 350 delegation from China, from all the provinces. Um, and recently just being in Hong Kong, where the Belt and Road discussions are very mature in terms of the financing angle, where the Hong Kong uh, uh, Monetary Authority has set up an infrastructure facilitation office. So I think, yes, you know, the, uh, the, there's the element of infrastructure financing, but the what... Bell and Road propels is really the larger flows of bilateral uh, trade and investment. That what I kind of observe, from my humble opinion, um, when I when you see the MOUs and the agreements that are you know behind acquisitions, uh, both ways really, uh, you know acquisitions of agriculture uh, products. Uh, um, um, contracts for aircraft leasing and whatnot. So I, I would really say that that's the other element of when we talk about Belt and Road. And I think then this doesn't become, this actually becomes more tangible. Because the Belt and Road is infrastructure, but the infrastructure and transportation facilitates flows. And you know, I've always you know, said that Belt and Road is really about bringing China and Asian markets closer to Europe. Um, I'm from Singapore, and, and you're absolutely right, you know, the Bell and Road discussion in Asia is very much focused on ASEAN. I'm awaiting for the, you know, long-awaited railway I can actually take from the south of China all the way to Singapore. So I'm very much looking forward to that. But again, that's also part of the larger story of regional economic and investment integration. So that's just the context that I, I thought I wanted to touch on. Um, the numbers. Numbers are always fun. 
you know, the billions and trillions numbers thrown around. Um, the 890 billion, uh, I, I thought it was very interesting that actually that's a number that I, from what I read, it was actually the number that China Development Bank mentioned that 890 billion uh, were underway and planned. And so that's very hard to kind of uh, dissect. Um, another um, uh, good figure that I think a lot of people allude to um, looking at the AIB because, you know, AIB defines that they're going to mostly focus on infrastructure and transportation projects uh, in Asia and, of course, like beyond. And so people like to look at what ADB says. So ADB, I think it's uh, 800 to a trillion per annum until 2020. And, you know, I, I imagine that a Belt and Road aspect is really feeding into that infrastructure financing need as well. Um, I think there's always um, the curiosity and, and the need to say, where is that list of projects? You know, well, if you know, please let me know too. <laughs> but the thing is, everyone has very different um, ideas of what the infrastructure needs are. Um, and, the, you know, I think the bottom line is it's an immense amount of needs um, in every region. Uh, it's a matter of, like, how the projects come together and are funded and who the players are. Um, you know, the EIU uh, had put out um, a, a very extensive report where they analyzed all the um, infrastructure-related uh, projects, either... Um, completed or underway or planned uh, based on announced tenders, and they have put it into a database, and they and it's basically across all the regions uh, related to Belt and Road. So for like Asia, uh, so Central South Asia, ASEAN. Uh, for Europe, it's largely on C, uh, the Central European countries, uh, and of course like Russia, so on and so forth. Um, and you know, you could put a whole number to it, but the point is, is these are open projects that you know very much like Chinese companies would be able to get involved, and then you know, then you could call it on road as well. So, on the one hand, you know, there are obviously very high-level uh, 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 government figures that have attributed how much they're committing to the Belt and Road, but also there's also the the kind of other aspect where I think things are actually just unfolding as they are. And I think that's what makes it so interesting uh, when we're discussing, you know, Belt and Road uh, uh, prospects and opportunities. Um, so uh, with that, um, I, I wanted to go back to my original um, uh, intention is to kind of zoom a little bit back uh, in terms of who the players are within the financing of the Belt and Road. Um, so the players of the Belt and Road, or the benef uh, beneficiaries, if you will, highlight the wider opportunities that go into the financing of Belt and Road. And so what, the, what, we're, what we're looking at is what they need um, and what they will have to consider. So um, when we talk about the players, they don't exist in isolation. We're really talking about cooperation, uh, a stakeholder cooperation, and they actually deliver uh, the, these projects. So the first, of, of course, is Chinese corporates, which you've mentioned, you know, um, Chinese uh, corporates in uh, the sectors of uh, transportation, resource, energy, and industries uh, are pretty much the forefront of this China outbound. Uh, they're not the main one, but they are a, a very, very key part. We usually see a very a major Chinese player um, you know, involved in, 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 a, in a project or a main contract. Um, of course, you have the Chinese banks, uh, which... Um, both Mr. Sun and uh, Alessandra has, uh, you, Alicia has um, elaborated as a very core component of funding the Belt and Road. Uh, a lot of these Chinese companies are attached to the Chinese banks that kind of travel with them outwards. Mr. Sun actually gave a very impressive overview of how the Chinese banks are, are, are rolling out in Europe. Um, I've met a lot of uh, uh, our Chinese bank colleagues uh, in Europe, in London, 
in Luxembourg, where a lot of holdings companies are. Um, when I was in Prague, I met the preparation team and rolling out the ICV, I think it's ICVC branch. So I, I think it's a matter of like, okay, so are they then, you know, the balance sheet, where is it sitting, Beijing or in Europe? And, and all these things are very, very important to actually supporting uh, a lot of the projects. And so the, they are a very, very key part of it. Um, you know, your, your, your point about the asset quality of banks, it's incredibly important. Um, but also at the same time, Mr. Sun mentions that I think the banks involved in Belt and Road um, are, I think at the moment from what we see are, at least from the commercial bank side is the, the big four um, um, that we observe. I think um, the total asset quality issue is also then loops in a lot of like domestic commercials, different tier banks, um, but that's by the by. Um, and so, again, the Chinese banks, you know, we talked about uh, Bank of China rolling out Belt and Road strategy uh, and uh, committed funds, um, ICBC uh, as part of uh, the China CEE uh, investment fund. So um, I think those are evidence of, uh, of the kind of commitment. Then, of course, you have the, the Belt and Road policy banks. I, I won't go into much detail because I think the speakers here have, have very uh, articulately captured the important role that they play and the amount of funds that, that they've committed. Um, but at the same time, they will be fairly new. So I think there's that process too of how they're actually going to go out there and work with governments, uh, with other multilateral development banks, with you know, private banks and you know, with project holders. Then of course, uh, on the non-Chinese side, uh, in Europe, uh, we also have the foreign corporates who are very much part of this Belt and Road story. And this very much pertains to Europe as well. Um, so that would be the local counterparties uh, contractors as part of the project, counterparties, subcontractors. It's a very, very uh, long list of supply chain and that everyone actually fits uh, into. And so um, then this, you know, instigate and drives a range of other related uh, uh, businesses, uh, ranging from supporting services within the supply chain. Um, and, you know, I think this is something I've noticed uh, when, you know, attending all these uh, investment events and even, you know, state-driven events, um, is the element of what it portends for increased investments, increase in trade um, beyond uh, the, the physical uh, infrastructure projects. And then finally, the role of uh, foreign financial institutions. Um, it's very stressful sitting here uh, with, you know, um, having bank as a label as if like I'm supposed to deliver all the funding. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think a lot of uh, banks, uh, be it Chinese or, or foreign banks, also have to consider like where they fit within the larger scheme of things. And so, you know, uh, the foreign financial institutions, if you will, uh, it's commercial banks, investment banks. Um, and we mustn't forget funds, you know, private sector capital is very wide. We have sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, hedge funds, uh, PE funds that are very, very much invested in a lot of projects uh, that we can actually define as Belt and Road. So here are the players. So what are the propositions then that we will need, you know, as part of the financing landscape? So obviously we have the project and, and, and export financing. I'm not an infrastructure financing expert. I'm not gonna wander into that. You said this, you, you mentioned procurement and I, was just, and I know it's a very, very complex issue. So, you know, so there's obviously a, 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 an issue of structuring uh, good loans uh, with proper advisory support uh, on, you know, basically uh, project and, uh, and, and export financing. And, um, the thing is, the loans can actually take in many different forms. Um, I think 
I think the point that you made earlier is that a lot of these projects aren't going to be funded just by loans. Um, the loans are a very big factor uh, about it, but it really is going to be more than that, and I will get into that a little bit later. Um, but uh, the loans, I think where, where you will see, and you have seen, you know, even before Bound Road came along, is that uh, a lot of Chinese banks, when they go out, uh, a lot of Chinese corporate uh, companies go out, you know, you actually see syndicated loans. So basically, Chinese commercial banks working with a counterparty uh, on the local level, a counterbank to actually put together uh, syndicated funds and support with guarantees. So uh, I think there's a lot more collaboration, you know, uh, in terms of actually on this in this kind of product structuring. Um, and, and really, I, actually, I want to talk, I think I want to spend a little bit more time uh, around the capital markets, uh, mainly because um, going back to your point, um, Bond Road isn't going to be funded purely by loans. I mean, that kind of financial firepower that is already committed, we can't even meet that, not even close. Um, loans aren't, aren't really going to do that. So re what it really is, and we already see it happening, is that they're turning to the capital markets. So, you know, we're talking about both debt and uh, equity markets. So in the case of uh, capital markets, you will see bond issuances um, and, um, and both on and offshore in RMB or, or in foreign currency. I mentioned RMB because I kind of look specifically at that. Um, we have uh, companies that have issued offshore and onshore RMB bonds. Uh, Poland issued a Panda bond, the first in Europe. And I know that a lot of other uh, countries in Europe are actually exploring uh, that as well in terms of creating kind of liquidity, uh, both onshore that can be facilitated. But we're also seeing like offshore RMB uh, bonds that actually are used to, uh, to support projects, but also in foreign currency. And, um, and also we have uh, IPOs and equity placements. And of course, um, but, but remember this is that it goes back to then who's actually doing them and what is it for? I think when it comes down to it, um, you know, whether it's like an acquisition or whether they're actually turning to the capital markets to fund these projects, we have to ask why they're doing it and, and what does it mean? Why? Well, obviously, they want to basically widen their pool to, to fund all these projects. But more importantly, actually, if you take a few steps back, is it goes back to, I think, your question when you say, will banks support uh, these projects? But no, really, it's whether investors will support these projects. Um, if you want to deliver a project to the capital markets, you have to meet all kinds of international standards uh, uh, to make a project uh, legal, investable, sustainable, right? Um, I, I say this because um, I remember uh, in, in Warsaw, uh, you know, during President Xi's visit, there was a very, very interesting panel uh, where we had uh, the chair of CIC, uh, we had uh, pretty much the executive directors and heads of China Exim Bank, uh, uh, um, we had Sukhwet Fund Chair woman, and so basically all the very big policy banks, uh, Chinese policy banks, and uh, we had, uh, I think we had someone from EBRD and uh, the the Poland policy bank, and it was it was a very interesting uh, demand and supply uh, dynamic where uh, CIC and 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 uh, China Exim Bank they said we want to you know uh, deploy innovative financial mechanisms to deliverable sustainable projects. These are not catchphrases. I, I do think that it is a commitment on the Chinese side to be able to deliver um, investable, sustainable projects. Um, not for the sake of it, but you know, their commitment to green finance, their commitment to R&B internationalization, it's a reflection of that, you know, uh, beyond just doing a loan. 
And then, uh, you know, on the multilateral bank side, they say, well, we're looking for investable and, and sustainable projects too. So I think it's where we are at this moment is kind of, kind of, you know, how that demand and supply kind of fits together. It sounds pretty much like what's actually really happening. Um, I noticed it's very interesting, you know, China was uh, on, you know, China took the leadership for the G20 summit. Green finance was a very, very strong uh, element of what they do. I think onshore, you look at China doing green finance, you know, they, they've come up with a green finance task force, green bonds principles, and they want to be able to carry, you know, the kind of uh, transparency and, uh, um, and expertise on, uh, you know, back to China as well. And so if they're able to do that offshore, you know, back to China did a, a very interesting green bond uh, uh, out of London. I think this is the direction that they want to be able to deliver. Um, and so, um, I mean, my point again, you know, so you're actually seeing these projects being raised in capital markets where you will have banks acting as advisories um, uh, and, you know, they could, uh, and, and, and these projects, when you go out to the markets, then who is actually going to invest in them? the investors are going to look at this class of infrastructure uh, infrastructure asset class and say, is it sustainable? Is it investable? Is it, well, legal is an obvious thing, but, you know, but usually we, we, we say, we ask questions like that. And these investors are sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, hedge funds, and your average investor. I think the conversation out in Asia um, is that they believe a lot of uh, the Belt and Road projects uh, and even infrastructure projects that, you know, that, pre that have been <coughs> allocated even before Belt and Road um, are going to be raised in local bond markets because, you know, Asia has one of the deepest bond markets uh, out there. And, um, and also, you know, the European markets are very mature in terms of looking at green and, and, and infrastructure asset classes. So there's actually that appetite there. I think in general, the infrastructure uh, asset uh, class has attracted a lot of uh, um, attention globally. And so I think we're going to see how, it'd be interesting to see how that's going to, to play out. Um, and and finally, of course, um, uh, there's the bread and butter services um, that uh, pretty much all the players in the Belt and Road are going to need Chinese uh, Chinese corporates, foreign corporates, basically bread and butter issues. You know, FX risk management, um, trade finance, payments, etc. These are all very important infrastructure. Um, that, you know, I would be remiss as a very important trade finance bank not to mention. Uh, but also, at the same time, you know, um, uh, why this is important uh, is that uh, the Chinese corporate is going out element. They're going out more than, I mean, this is one of the most important trends that we're seeing in the last two years. You know, Chinese outbound investment has overtaken FDI for the first time in 2015. Massive M&As uh, uh, outbound. And so, as they come out, then Chinese banks are supporting them, but pretty much foreign banks like us are also supporting them too. And, and we're actually supporting them with very, very key important infrastructure issues uh, around this. And so, you know, th th this is like that range of the financing need, financing for infrastructure projects, financing for trade and investment project uh, deals that are emerging. So I would say it's, it's deeper, it's wider. Um, and I suppose that's why we're, we're very much invested in the prospects of, of Belt and Road. So um, I, I'm going to stop here. <laughs> I could go on forever. It's, I, I love this topic. And it's been really interesting also listening to uh, my co-panelists. I learned a lot, too. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you for all of your presentations. Um, I got a lot of information today, so some things that I've never thought about, and, but uh, it's quite insightful. I don't want to waste time, so I will take questions from you because we don't have too much time left. And uh, for this gentleman first, and uh, then, wow, so many questions, but we still have time. <laughs> okay, thank you. Oh, hello. My name is uh, James Cantor from New York Times. I'm sorry if I missed some of the detail, but um, maybe I can just ask the question in a rather blunt way and get a straightforward answer. Where's the 10 billion that China promised the uh, European investment fund for that Juncker developed? Thanks. Okay, okay. I, I can take more questions and uh, then you can answer. Okay, okay, we miss you. It's okay, it's okay. Um, thank you very much for your interesting speeches. Uh, my name is Iris, and I'm a, I'm a visiting fellow at the uh, European Institute for Asian Studies. So I have a very, like, kind of a broad question. So I would like to know, um, so what kind of challenges, like potential challenges that for the European, um, for the EU and China, financial and investment um, cooperation? Thank you Okay, very much. that's a tough question. <laughs> okay. That, uh, can you repeat a bit? Or? Or you need me to repeat it for you? Okay. Sorry, my, yes. So I would like to ask, like, what is the potential challenges for the EU and China um, cooperation in terms of financing and investment? Thank you. Is that uh, we can answer the two questions first, and uh, then I will open floor to the more audience questions. And do you want to ask a question? Well, there, there have been some reports on this 10 billion, but uh, it was never mentioned officially and it was never promised. So this was uh, uh, numbers we read as much as you. So there were discussions on amounts, but uh, these were not uh, never never officialized. Uh, as in every discussions, we have I can mention another three figures below that number that came into discussions, but it, it doesn't help. What is important is that. Uh, there was not a promise because there was not a demand. Uh, we had a discussion because we wanted to align the two initiatives and not focus on a specific amount. And that's uh, where we had the constructive discussions to see how can we find a win-win solution between the investment plan, etc. What is the interest from the EU side is to leverage third-party funds, thanks to the guarantee and the EIB financing that we developed with the FC, with the European Fund for Strategic Investments. So any, any sovereign wealth fund or any private investor who wants to, to participate into the projects, they have to, uh, they don't need uh, to promise anything to the Commission, or not even to the EIB, because there is not a single uh, place where this money can be collected. This is a bottom-up uh, fund which works on the basis of demand. So uh, it is not planned in advance where to finance projects with the FC, uh, so much uh, in, uh, in uh, this country, so much in that country, and so much from these investors. This is not the way it works. Uh, that works a bit with the, with the grants, with the structural funds. That's a bit the approach, but these are grants. Uh, the FC, which is leveraging primarily uh, financing from the market, from the capital markets, uh, because it's based on the on the borrowing of the EIB, complemented by co-financing from uh, private or, or third-party investors. It works on the basis of projects, 
individual projects like a specific railway or a renewable energy plant or, a, or an innovation project which is presented to the EIB by a counterpart which can be public or private and this counterpart is the entity which decides on its own uh, financing uh, mix. So it is this entity which says it's the EIB for financing under the investment plan and then the EIB goes through the due diligence and if the project fits with the criteria of FC that includes a certain level of risk above the normal level of EIB <coughs> plus leveraging private capital and other requirements, then the EIB can finance this project. Whether this project is co-financed in parallel by the Silk Road Fund or by others, this is a decision of this counterpart. Where we have been working with the Silk Road Fund, we, I mean the EIB actually, they've been working to try to see whether there could be more transparency and more connections with the potential borrowers who are looking for complementary financing and whether we could have a sort of a facilitation in this context. But uh, to, to announce an amount does not make a lot of sense because these are a sum of individual decisions. Uh, but certainly there has been a, a clear willingness to, to cooperate and to try to put together a cooperation. That's where we, we are now. Could there be a framework of cooperation uh, whereby there could be a certain uh, funds channeled through the Silk Road Fund to then go into a series of individual projects? Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. I think this uh, cooperation shows uh, the EU's uh, openness to the third uh, countries, and then uh, also the uh, the uh, the China's interest and support to the development of the EU of the Europe, and also the, uh, the, uh, the 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 support to the Commission, uh, and the uh, practical negotiation is still undergoing. So we hope that will. Uh, this kind of uh, pragmatic uh, solution could be reached, and we we will want to see this uh, concrete uh, joint re uh, joint uh, the project uh, could be financed by, uh, by by Chinese and uh, the European money. Okay, I will take more questions. Okay, then the the gentleman first, and uh, there are two, so I take three questions this time. So I have a question for Mr. Sun. Um, you made it clear that a focus of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative uh, will be on railway. Now, given the complexity and the framework of partners uh, involved, it's not only European Union, it's Western Balkan states, it's uh, uh, Russia, it's Pakistan, China. <laughs> uh, do you already have a time perspective? <laughs> when this railway connection will start uh, to function, uh, additional to uh, shipping connections and to air uh, connections. Thank you. Okay, that gentleman. That one. Um, Onur Ulusoy from NATO. Um, as uh, you might guess, uh, I'm from NATO, so my question will be a little bit uh, apart from economics and finance, and I want to hear the uh, valuable thoughts of the um, speakers, esteemed speakers. Uh, first, uh, I have two parameters in front of me. One is about politics, the other is about international security, and I uh, wonder if these two uh, parameters have a negative effect on the future of initiative. 
First, the politics. Uh, new uh, U.S. administration and Mr. Trump's uh, maybe a little bit aggressive uh, to, uh, approach towards China. Uh, will it be a negative effect in the future? A possible negative effect. Second question. Uh, regarding the uh, geopolitical risks uh, in the uh, route on the, and the, in the neighboring countries, uh, will these uh, international security risks uh, will affect uh, or dis, uh, discourage the investors in future, possibly? Thank you. Hi, Ludmila Silva from ISIS in Brazil. We not only sit next to each other, we also have similar questions. Uh, my question is, uh, what will be the impact on the OBOR project, uh, given the new uh, United States administration and a perhaps potentially, most likely, uh, renegotiation of trade um, agreement with China, or trade policy, I should say, with China? Um, what impact that will have on the OBOR? Uh, and the second part of my question is something that was just alluded briefly by the panel, um, which is the, the political will. Uh, is there a political will in Europe uh, to pursue OBOR in face of rising populism and nationalism? Um, and I could not help, and I don't want to pick on the speaker because I think it's very, you know, OBOR holds great potential. But when you mention the beneficiaries of it, I will read from my notes, Chinese corporates, Chinese banks, uh, OBOR policy banks, EU corporates, and foreign financial institutions. This is a populist dream list on how he can go back to his constituency and say, and this is why we should not have this project. So could you address that? Does it need to be repackaged? so that the people feel that there's something in it for them. Sorry to be blunt. Thank you, thank you. So I will leave the panel to answer the question first. Um, oh, okay, one more question. Okay. Yes, um, hello. I would like to know how China understands um, about their high-speed railways, which kind of telecommunication system will they use? Their own, Beidou? Or will they allow other telecommunication systems to interfere and share connectivity? I speak of high-speed uh, railway station. Okay, merci. Okay, thank you. I will let me first answer questions, and I see if it's time for more questions. Minji, I think there are a lot of questions for you, so <laughs> you can answer first. Thank you for the interest on, on the OBOR and, and China's role. Uh, I think uh, <coughs> uh, I think OBOR is uh, our joint baby, and uh, it's a kind of a regional cooperation initiative. is uh, will benefit for the uh, benefit the, the 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 countries around the road. So I don't think that the uh, the, the the new U.S. administrations and. Uh, uh, Policy pro China policy approach will have a significant impact on the on, on the OBOR. Uh, I think uh, also there are many American companies, business councils, uh, local governments want to uh, get involved uh, in this OBOR. And there uh, uh, and uh, even during the Obama administration, uh, the, uh, the 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 official. Uh, 
position has been cha uh, has changed toward the uh, AIB because they found that the AIB is uh, is a supplement, uh, is a complement to the uh, this uh, uh, these uh, uh, international uh, financial institutions, and this uh, AIB and ADB is kind of uh, uh, they have a very um, healthy competition and cooperation uh, relations. And uh, for the security concern, absolutely, there's a huge. This is a huge project, uh, but the, uh, our approach is this: a common, uh, sustainable, and uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and secure, uh, common, secure, uh, sustainable, and uh, this kind of uh, uh, security concept. We believe that. Uh, the 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 uh, safeguarding of the security and stability uh, along the the this uh, uh, belt and road is need this the uh, the uh, uh, how to say these joint efforts uh, uh, from the people uh, and the countries uh, and business people all all everyone along this road China cannot uh, afford uh, to uh, a lonely. Alone, alone, alone to, to alone the this uh, the security, and um, and this uh, uh, railway networks. I think uh, our uh, final dream is that this uh, uh, this OBOR could contr contribute contribute to the uh, uh, the integration uh, integrated uh, the huge market of uh, across the. Uh, Euro-Asian uh, uh, continent and uh, and uh, and beyond that, uh, so uh, it will last decades uh, to uh, to uh, I mean this uh, construction of the completion of this uh, idea and the dream will last decades, and uh, uh, and at the same time we should know we should take note that the railway connection has already been there. Uh, but we we should uh, what we should do is to improve the uh, those uh, improve those uh, infrastructure now to the build another uh, uh, completely new one and uh, and there's a, uh, it should be a, a balanced uh, how to say division of labor uh, among uh, this uh, the trans uh, the railway transportation the airline the the, the, the air or or the, the uh, maritime transportation. It's not uh, how say replace one uh, the one replace the other, yeah, uh, and I think the business people know this uh, uh, this uh, uh, well made decision across their uh, profit uh, calculations. And finally, I should say that uh, we abide by uh, this principle uh, of uh, uh, of uh, extensive uh, consultation, uh, joint construction. And the shared benefit. Uh, the OBOR is not a China solo show. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of it's our joint baby. We, we say it's a it's a symphony uh, uh, performed by an orchestra made of um, uh, all participants' countries along 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 the route, and we we cannot manage uh, everything. Yeah, we need the support, especially from Europe. Yeah, and also you mentioned this. Uh, we have. You mentioned the regulations, EU regulations. Uh, we, uh, we, uh, uh, our position is that we support 
firmly support uh, all along this, uh, how to say, this is a strong, the uh, prosperous Europe, the strong Euro, and the United uh, the EU. And uh, we, uh, we abide by uh, the EU regulations. But at the same time, you mentioned this, there are different, uh, how to say, development stage between us. So we, 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 we would like to see this uh, principle of flexibility of the regulation. Yeah, and and the the regulations the 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 aim of the regulation is not is not only regulate, but to boost jobs and growth, and also the to 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 achieve this win-win result with other countries. Yeah, thank you. And do you want the next sentence? Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. Um, just okay. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like to address the question of whether everything we've said has changed since Trump took office, basically. And, uh, maybe the answer is yes, but in my opinion, for the better in terms of this project, maybe that's the only good thing that <laughs> we can find out of, of all of these new changes. But the way I read this, and we wrote about this uh, right after uh, Trump was elected, uh, of course, the first thing we thought, TPP is dead, Trans-Pacific Partnership, it actually seems to be dead. I mean, it was recently announced. And we came all the way at, after that uh, assumption or you know what we thought would be very likely with the idea that uh, China would be a winner, which is what we've uh, constantly been reading in the Chinese press and elsewhere most recently. Uh, and therefore, China would have more room uh, to build, and I know that this is a symphony, but the reality, I call it also a backyard. So it's a symphonic backyard, but it's a backyard. It's not only a, a symphony, in my opinion. And whether it can also be a backyard to Europe, that's the question. So, you know, that's where we... So, the issue is, I think it'll be easier for China to build that around. Let's forget the word, whatever that is. But to some extent, meaning uh, how powerful, big does this can be, and for how long will it take China to build this, will probably determine Trump's reaction. So, so in a way, I think what, uh, in, in a nutshell, what I think is that this boosts the likelihood that the Belt and Road will actually happen in, but maybe uh, in a way that is not too aggressive in its, uh, in its shaping to avoid uh, a counter reaction from the US. That's the way I see it. This brings me to the paper that uh, and kindly referred to, where we had an assumption in which, okay, the Belt and Road today is what I call brick and mortar, and we can agree that behind the brick and mortar there is lots more, yeah? Trade, investment, and... But the reality is that not a free, so far, it's not a free trade agreement. That we know for a fact. And that the free trade agreements being discussed are elsewhere, ASEAN, receive, RECEP, I mean, but it's not the Belt and Road as such, as defined. So we were thinking, what about, what if China, and Trump only kind of pushes this argument further, where to think, well, I want to go further. Why not beyond all of the things that I'm building or we're all building, but, you know, uh, I'd like to have also tariff reductions, massive tariff reductions to make this uh, a free trade uh, area. And 
we come up with some uh, results for that hypothesis, which would reduce quite massively the win-win for Europe. In other words, the 6% trade creation for Europe would basically nearly disappeared for a very obvious reason, because we, we are assuming, and all of this is our dreams, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, that that free trade area would exclude Europe. Yeah, I mean, Europe would not. Now, of course, this was written the, uh, before Trump came to office, and, and uh, the question is, where, where is Europe going to be? We have a wonderful single market. One could argue it's big enough, but others could argue it's not really big enough. We want partners, and you know, we want uh, trade, uh, new trade agreements. And would then Europe be, given what's happening with the, with the U.S., I've not even mentioned TTIP, but I guess I've not mentioned it because it might never be there. So, so would this push Europe closer to this hypothetical, again, nothing of this has been yet uh, even flirted, I think, Belt and Road Free Trade Agreement. So in a way, to make a long story short, I think this pushes, first of all, the Belt and Road to become more of a reality. Second, eventually, maybe, to Europe being leaning more towards China, even perhaps a day free trade agreement with China, or even eventually, you know, Belt and Road free trade area. Because in a way, it's, it's more isolated from the West. It's just, you know, mere uh, conceptual thinking. It's, it's, so it all depends on how far Trump goes and how free China is to start building that reality going beyond brick and mortar. So that would be my answer for that. I, I find it very interesting when you talk about the Belt and Road Free Trade Agreement. Very interesting. I'm really looking forward to reading your report. I read the summary of it, and I was just so excited. I'm like, I actually can't believe that actually a cost is being attached to, like trade uh, trade costs actually going down. Um, and I think that's very interesting. I think just one comment on that, um, I think more, more out of interest, is that... Um, Regardless of Trump, I mean, all these like free trade agreements and kind of trade dynamics have been ongoing. If you look at ASEAN uh, and China, you have the China-ASEAN agreement, China, you know, ASEAN plus 10. Uh, in Central Asia, you have uh, the Eurasian Customs Union. Um, and what else? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think they've all been there. Uh, I mean... I don't know what Trump can do. I mean, clearly Trump can do a lot on Twitter, but I mean, I mean, the question is, um, you know, I mean, I think that's obviously an open question for, for all of us, but um, I, I think that's very interesting. Uh, back to your question. Uh, I won't comment about populism. Um, I, I do, then what I will do is go back and reiterate and clarify what I just said. I said, when I talk about the players and the beneficiaries in the, in the financial landscape, because we were talking about financing Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so I, I think with that clarified, actually, I was talking about the, the, the players of which, like how these financing are going to work out and how the projects are being funded. Um, I think that if we're going to go broader, beneficiaries of, of ball and road or, or trade and investment, um, I can only share what I ob observed um, out of London, you know, and then I was, as I said, I was in Europe. Uh, I, I'm sorry. As I said, I was in a, a Prague and Warsaw. Is you know, um, in Warsaw, the MOUs that were signed, a lot of them were actually you know about I, I mentioned uh, contracts to export agricultural goods from Poland to China, 
uh, there are collaborations on the R&D front uh, for uh, medical equipment. Um, there was, in, in Prague, interestingly, Prague's beautiful, and they, they, when I was there, you know, they just declared that there will be direct routes from three cities in China into Prague, which they're looking at doubling the inflow of tourists, you know, in, within a very short period of time. Uh, someone mentioned a Northern Powerhouse initiative. Um, if you look at the projects listed on the Powerhouse initiative, um, a lot of it is to do with um, investment in cities, uh, Birmingham, Manchester, and you know the Chinese investment element is all one portion of it. But really, it's it's the bigger story is about you know the um, kind of investment as a whole in, in in the north of the UK. So, would I mean all this stuff that I've mentioned would this upset people? Would they feel that they they have been left out of it, I don't know, but that's what I see um, based on this announcement. So I, I hope that's helpful. Very briefly, first of all, I would like to thank uh, for uh, what was mentioned in terms of support to the EU and to the Euro, um, but also add um, a couple of data that were not mentioned so far, one on trade and the other on FDI. On trade, uh, if my data are correct, uh, last year there was more than 400 billion euro trade between the EU and China, and it was a record. So it's not so depressed. Of course, there is a difference depending on the goods and which way we are looking at, but the total. So the EU is the China's biggest trading partner, and China is the second biggest for, uh, for the EU. On FDI, the China FDI into Europe has been growing exponentially. Uh, in the last five, six years, to reach $40 billion uh, last year, uh, mainly acquisitions. Uh, now, we know this may change in the future, but this has been the trend. And so, uh, so far, there has been quite uh, openness uh, to this uh, in Europe, in, uh, at the level of all, uh, of all countries, and in many, many sectors, uh, energy, transport, etc., manufacturing, the ICT. Whereas EU FDI in China, has been flattening or slightly going down to $8 billion uh, last year, mainly uh, cars and mainly greenfields, not so much acquisitions. That uh, There are different, uh, depending on the sectors, there are some that are more open and some less. Um, so this is a bit the picture, and it shows that there are still, I think, ample opportunities for both ways trade and both ways uh, FDIs, which are not static. They evolve and depends on the sectors. And, uh, and uh, to respond also to one question we have not fully answered on the challenges, uh, I think the challenges is to make sure that we, that we keep having an alignment on the priorities and we keep having an alignment uh, as much as possible on investment cooperation and ensuring that we have a sort of reciprocity as much as possible into, into maybe we will not have exactly the same rules applying in both ways, but at least the principles and the approach should be uh, in the direction of being as uh, free trade and free investment as possible. This is, would be a welcome way forward for us. Can I add a few more? Yeah. yeah. Uh, for Trump, uh, we, uh, we, we, we don't conceive us as, uh, as a winner when Trump uh, give, uh, give up this TPP because we still uh, push forward this idea of the FTAAP, that's the FTA for Asia Pacific. And uh, we hope that in the, in the U.S. will come up with the other uh, countries of Asia Pacific. 
and and for FDI. I think the accumulative and a volume uh, of FDI from EU to China is much more. Uh, it's still much more than uh, than Chinese FDI to Europe. So, but. Uh, so, uh, uh, I should say that uh, take it easy, and this, yeah, the cumulative, yeah, yeah. But the increased in the volume is still, yeah, it is a trend. And if we compare this uh, uh, the mutual FDI between US and EU, I think most, uh, uh, each, uh, each of these uh, is amount to 2.5, um, about 2.5 trillion uh, US dollars. Uh, I think uh, uh, compared to that, uh, we're still uh, nothing to say. Uh, we say uh, China, you said China, uh, U.S. is uh, the biggest uh, trading partner of EU. EU is also the biggest. But for for China, EU, we are the you are the second biggest and you are the biggest. But the, compared to the trade, uh, the FDI volume, accumulative volume uh, with the uh, EU-U.S. Uh, uh, relations, so it's. Uh, is nothing, almost zero. So we have uh, a lot of to 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 uh, to catch up together. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for your participation. I know if we continue for this topic, this can go for a whole day. But uh, you know, we have to stop here because Alicia and some other have to take the train or something. So if you have any questions, you can send emails to all the participants, and uh, we can discuss later. Thank you for all your participation. Thank you very much.